Episode 47, The Reformation Spreads Across Northern Europe. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, did you enjoy our brief excursion into hell last episode? I did. And since the world didn't end and we didn't get to experience the afterlife together firsthand, I guess we're stuck here for a while. So let's keep looking at history and see if there's anything we can learn from it. Before everything went to hell, we were talking about Martin Luther and the beginning of the Reformation. Again, the Reformation was kind of exclusive to Northern Europe. Part of the reason for this is that the south of Europe had almost 1,500 years of history of being dominated by Rome and everything, society, politics, economy, religion, even language. They were all just more connected with Rome than the northern part of Europe was. So people in the north felt more freedom to complain about Rome and more freedom to separate themselves from Rome's influence. So after Luther and Prince Frederick led the German churches to become independent of Rome, other groups across the northern part of Europe started to do the same. Can you imagine being the Pope back in those days and getting all the bad news? What, Switzerland? Switzerland has left too? And Norway? Oh my gosh, and what's this letter from Henry VIII of England that I've just received? That can't be good. All across northern Europe, countries and churches were leaving the influence of Rome. Luther's ideals, encapsulated in the five solas, really captured some things that people across Northern Europe were already thinking and feeling. One of the key ideas was the idea of sola scriptura, or only scripture. Church leaders across Northern Europe, inspired by this idea, and also by their own reading of the Bible, started either leaving the Roman church and forming new national churches, like Luther had done with Germany, or leaving and starting smaller independent church groups, not national churches like the Lutheran church was in Germany, but just small independent churches. For example, in Bohemia, which is in modern Czechia, or the Czech Republic, used to be Czechoslovakia, a group of reformers started saying that according to the Bible, the only form of valid baptism was when an adult voluntarily chose to be baptized. Now, for over a thousand years, the church had been baptizing infants within a few days of them being born, calling them Christians, and saying that was good enough. But this Bohemian group said that these infants would need to choose to be baptized again as adults. They became known as the Anabaptists, which basically means rebaptizers. So from this group, the modern Baptist churches that we know would eventually be born. Now, just as a side note, this topic, baptism, is actually another one of those areas where you would really like the Bible to be clear, but it just isn't. What's clear in the Bible is that getting baptized is important. It's very important. But the mechanics of it, the age requirement, well, that part, that's just not very clear. It seems clear in the Bible that you're supposed to get baptized if you become a follower of Jesus, and that you should use water rather than ketchup or used motor oil or a frosty cerveza, but other than that, there's just not a lot of specifics about how and who gets baptized. Anyway, the key thing for the Anabaptists was that they thought that adults had to choose on their own to be followers of Christ, that it wasn't enough just to be baptized as a kid and say, yep, yep, I'm in. You had to be baptized as an adult. 
And if you had been baptized as an infant, well, that wasn't really your choice, was it? So the Anabaptists felt like you needed to be baptized again as an adult. The Anabaptists and another Bohemian group, the Moravians, started small congregations where they could work out their practices and their theologies on their own, kind of independent from Rome or any other national church. These small congregations were not ruled over by a larger national hierarchy. Each church was basically independent, although they were sort of loosely associated with each other. This was a pretty radical idea at the time, but it was also pretty much exactly how the earliest churches were back in the day in the first couple of generations after Jesus' death, just small independent churches with no national hierarchy over them. In Switzerland, not far from Bohemia and Germany, two local church leaders named Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin were also influenced by Luther. They guided the churches of Switzerland out of Roman control as well, and they began to make even more dramatic changes to the way the church worked and did its church services than Luther had done. They removed more and more of the Roman Catholic elements of the church service, they stopped calling it a mass, and they tried to keep all that they did based on the Bible. John Calvin was both a preacher and a professor, and he also wrote a book that came to be one of the defining books of the Reformation. His book was called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it tried to create an entire systematic definition of all church doctrine in one big book, entirely from a biblical perspective. Now, he wasn't the first to try this. St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas had written similar books, but Calvin's book was unique in its focus on trying to get all this information just from the Bible, and it also became a central point of study for all Reformation scholars. Calvin also tried to get the city of Geneva that he lived in to set up its government based only on the Bible. This was only kind of successful, but Geneva did go on to become a real hub for Protestant students of the Bible in the 15 and 1600s. But this idea of a city based entirely on the Bible and everyone living according to the Bible's rules was a very influential idea for Protestant groups. It goes on to influence several other Protestant groups, and it becomes the model for how they try to do things. The idea that all the people of one area could just come together and they would agree together to live under a sort of group covenant based on the Bible. This is exactly what the pilgrims are going to do when they land at Plymouth Rock. That is less than a hundred years away now. Yikes. The pilgrims were influenced by Calvin, both in terms of government and theology. Meanwhile, over in England, there were reform movements going on as well. Influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, and also Luther and Calvin, many people were trying to reform the Church of England, but at times, of course, it resisted reform. But then along came Henry VIII. Henry VIII is a towering figure in English history, one of the more charismatic and influential kings in a long list of kings. Henry came to the throne in 1509 at the age of 17. Soon after, he married Catherine of Aragon, who was a little bit older than him, and she bore him several children, but all but one of them died young. The one child of theirs that survived, Mary, would go on to become the Queen of England. We'll come back to her in a moment. But since Catherine could not give Henry a boy, a male heir, he decided that he would try to have his marriage annulled. To annul a marriage, which is different than a divorce, 
you have to get the church to declare that the marriage was never valid in the first place. So Henry appealed to the Pope and asked him to annul the marriage. But the Pope, Clement VII, was a cousin of Catherine of Aragon, so he refused. Now there's speculation that Henry was already having an affair with Anne Boleyn, who's going to go on to become his second wife, and that this was part of his reason for wanting an annulment. But Henry was also having several affairs with other women of other parts of his reign as well, so this is only part of the story. In any case, not getting the annulment, Henry goes ahead and he divorces Catherine and marries Anne, and Anne was moved into Catherine's quarters in the palace. Anne soon bore Henry another daughter, Elizabeth, who we'll also come back to. In fact, Elizabeth is going to get her own episode. Elizabeth's mom, Anne Boleyn, was apparently a very unusually well-educated and intelligent woman, and she was influenced by the Protestant reformers of England, Scotland, and the rest of Europe. So she may have influenced Henry as well, but that's just speculation. Anyway, Henry, who is still mad at the Pope for not annulling his first marriage, looked over across at Europe and he saw churches leaving the Roman church all over the place, and he decided to just take the whole of the Church of England out as well. In 1534, he had several laws passed that declared him to be the leader of all the churches in England, not the Pope, and that the churches of England were no longer under the authority of Rome or the Pope. All of the tithe revenue of the church also was directed to Henry's government rather than going to Rome. This effectively marked the end of the Church of England being part of the Roman Catholic Church. But overall, the changes were not as drastic as the changes with Luther or Calvin. It was more political than theological at this point, but it did mean that now the Church of England was a Protestant church. It was no longer Catholic anyway. Henry VIII also created the Royal Navy, expanding the navy from seven ships to over 50 by the end of his reign. The Royal Navy is going to become a big thing in world politics, by the way. You may have heard the old saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, that's courtesy of the Royal Navy. England becomes a world power almost entirely because of the Royal Navy. The British had one of the strongest and best trained navies in the world, starting basically from the end of Henry's reign. After that, under Elizabeth, the Royal Navy goes on to defeat the Spanish Armada, and then under Admiral Nelson, they will later defeat the French, and after that, they were the undisputed masters of the seas for centuries, until basically the middle of World War II, when the U.S. Navy kind of took over. We can probably even pick the date of that transfer. That was June 7, 1942, when the U.S. Navy defeated the Japanese Navy at the Battle of Midway, and became probably the strongest navy in the world. I'll just tell you in advance that the Battle of Midway is also going to get its own episode when we get there. Anyway, back to England in the 1500s. Henry was just building up the Royal Navy, and the local English bishops were beginning to reform the church and to change things away from the way they had been done as Catholic churches. The English churches started using Tyndale's English translation of the Bible, and they created an English Book of Common Prayer, and they started using English hymns. Though the motivation for leaving Rome had been mostly political, the culture, practice, and theology of the Church of England started really to move towards Protestantism as well. The churches in Scotland started to join the Reformation as well. One of the Scottish leaders was a guy named John Knox, and he was strongly influenced by John Calvin. 
Knox was a bishop who was instrumental in Scotland leaving the Catholic Church and moving towards the growing group of Presbyterians, which is a subgroup of Protestantism. Knox was born in Scotland around 1514, and he eventually went to the University of St. Andrews, which we mentioned way back in episode 5.1 because I interviewed my son Clayton, who's a doctoral student there at St. Andrews. No school like an old school. Anyway, Knox, as a preacher, spent a lot of time criticizing the Church of Rome and the political leaders of both England and Scotland, and he made a lot of enemies. But he also had a huge following among Scotsmen who saw him as a kind of Scottish revolutionary leader. While Knox was working to lead Scotland out of the Catholic Church, a bit of a power shift took place down in England. Henry VIII died in 1547, and his son Edward VI, who was from Henry's third marriage, that was to Jane Seymour, Edward VI became king at the age of nine. Edward only ruled six years until he was 15. Then he also died, and after a bit of a power struggle, Henry's first daughter, Mary, from his first marriage, became the queen. But now we've got a bit of a problem. Mary was a committed Catholic. She also had the support of a number of English lords who wanted to remain Catholic. Now, these were a minority, but they were still important. So under Mary, England starts to move back towards Rome and towards the Catholic Church. Lots of English church leaders who wanted to stay Protestant started teaching openly that the people of England were not obligated to follow or obey a Catholic monarch. John Knox in Scotland, for example, openly said the same thing. Mary, who was trying to consolidate her power, had many of these dissenters arrested. Mary had the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, whose name was Thomas Cranmer, arrested and imprisoned him in the Tower of London. She also arrested Hugh Latimer, the outspoken Bishop of Worcester, and Nicholas Ridley, who had been the Bishop of London, and many others. For a while, Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were all imprisoned in the Tower of London together. Then they were transferred to Oxford, where they were tried for heresy. In 1555, Latimer and Ridley were burnt at the stake in Oxford, and Cranmer was forced to watch. There's a monument there in Oxford where they were burned. I've got a picture of it on the website. Latimer was about 70, and Ridley was in his 50s. Apparently, Latimer's last words were, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle, by God's grace in England, as shall never be put out kind of a manly thing to say when you're about to be lit up. We shall never be put out. He wasn't wrong in a way, though. After their death, sympathy for Protestant leaders grew, and resistance to Mary grew as well. Over the course of her reign, she had over 250 religious leaders burned at the stake and many more imprisoned, and this, of course, greatly increased local resistance to her rule. Now, Mary ends up only ruling for five years, and she and her husband were unable to have children. And then she got ill, perhaps from uterine cancer. Maybe why she couldn't have killed kids either. She died on November 17, 1558, at the age of 42. The next in line for the throne was her half-sister, Elizabeth, whose mother had been Henry's second wife, after Mary's mother. Queen Mary's death effectively ended the re-emergence of the Catholic Church in England, and under Mary's successor, Queen Elizabeth, 
England went back to Protestantism, continuing the spread of the Reformation across Northern Europe. This is one of the reasons that this period of history matters to us today. As a result of Henry VIII, Mary, and Elizabeth, and their policies towards religion, one of the side effects that begins to happen in England is the establishment of these small, unofficial splinter groups, small, unofficial Christian movements that met outside of the main state church, whatever that was at the time. These people were essentially religious dissidents who didn't support whichever church group was in power. So when the Catholics were in power, the Protestants formed little dissident groups. And when the Protestants were in power, the Catholics formed little dissident groups. And there were also smaller groups who supported neither the Catholics nor the official Church of England. What I'm getting at is that there was this religious culture developing of dissent and a culture of groups seeking to follow the Bible in their own way rather than the way of the state church, similar to what was going on with the Bohemians in Central Europe, for example. Now, these religious dissent groups in England are going to become very important in the 1600s, which are rapidly approaching in our podcast episodes, as many of these dissent groups will leave England and make the rather harrowing three-month journey across the North Atlantic, and they will begin founding religious settlements of different varieties all along the coast of North America. An underappreciated part of the motivation for the founding of many of the North American colonies was that a great number of the people who migrated to the colonies were going there to escape religious persecution, or at least to found their own religious communities. Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Rhode Island, and Connecticut were all started by religious dissidents. This search for religious independence is going to greatly influence both the culture and the politics of the colonies, as we shall soon see. All of this was catalyzed by the religious policies of Henry, Mary, and Elizabeth, and by the spread of the Reformation across Northern Europe. Well, Elizabeth, as I said, will get her own episode, but before we get to her, we need to take a look at the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation. So next episode, we will look at the Counter-Reformation. Counter-Reformation.